Turning your Bibles to Acts 17. Acts 17 is our introduction to our third exhortation from Paul in 1 Thessalonians. You say, you're going to read an exhortation from 1 Thessalonians from the book of Acts? Yes. And that's the marvels of this book. Crafted and marvelously planned by the Holy Spirit, all integrated into one another with one continuous theme and one harmonious unity. 66 books, yet one marvelous message and theme. But Acts 17, the first nine verses, introduce for us the third aspect of Paul's blueprint for blamelessness. He's talking to a group of people who are saved right out of paganism, right out of a a very desperate lifestyle, and he's giving them something that they can lay hold on. And in this first section of the 17th chapter of Acts, we find the third of Paul's powerful exhortations. Now, let me just read through these nine verses with you and perhaps uh, remind you of some things you already know or perhaps uh, give a little insight that will help you understand if you've never seen this before. You remember in its chapter 16, they're in Philippi. And they leave Philippi, and Luke starts the travelogue up in verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis... Now, that means nothing to us until we realize that's a 30-mile walk, 30-mile walk after being beaten, as Paul had been in that previous chapter. Amphipolis was called Amphipolis because it was a city on both sides of the street, or the Ignatian Way. Then they walk from there to Apollonia, another 30-mile walk, on foot, in the tremendous heat, if it had been summertime, which... uh, is very hot in that Macedonian area. Then it says they came to Thessalonica, 37 more miles of walking. So when Paul left Philippi, which would be up around toward Turkey on the Macedonian coast, up toward where the uh, Hellespont is, when you walk down around 97 miles down to the city of Thessalonica. What an amazing uh, trek they take. And so we see here that Paul walks onward for 97 miles on foot, in a weak physical frame. The next thing we see is he reasons. In verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbath days reasoned with them in the Scriptures. So he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the people from the Scriptures, presenting to them what they were all about. I was talking to someone this week and they said, I'm reading through the Old Testament and it's hard for me to figure out what it's all about. I was glad to hear that. I'm looking forward to maybe taking a break after David or something and just taking one or two services and walking through the whole Bible to show how all those uh, birds with their necks getting twists in the Old Testament and the blood being taken from goats and, and bulls, what that has to do with everything else. Because that's what these people were trying to see. They were well acquainted with all of the Jewish customs, but they didn't understand where Christ fit in all of that. So he reasons with them. Now look at verse 3, explaining and giving evidence, and now becomes his central focus, his proclamation of Christ. It says that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, Mashiach from the Old Testament. This is who God has been pointing toward through all the Scriptures all this time. So the man who walks from Philippi, reasons in the synagogue, proclaims Jesus Christ. 
He tells them, this is the answer. Now, our world's getting closer and closer toward that. With everything that's happening so quickly, with the realignment of the nations, the now we're getting away from warfare and getting into uh, materialism and, and the world global economy. And, and it's like we're in an unparalleled time. And once the whole world is networked into that, and there's any kind of jolt to the system, they're going to look for a leader to lead them out of it. Well, there was a similar uh, religious jolt, and the world was kind of in a time in this period where, where there was great expectations that something great was on the horizon. And Paul says, the great thing you may have heard about is that there is a Messiah coming, and He came, and His name is Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded... That's an interesting thing. People don't like to, to sometimes accept that there is a persuasion that is hand in hand with the gospel. A person cannot be saved unless the Holy Spirit opens their heart, draws them, convicts them. But there is the human element where we must give them the word of God, where we must passionately declare the word of God, where we must faithfully testify of the word of God, where we must continually be sharing the word of God. Because people don't come to Christ unless they're exposed to the word of God. So Paul exposes them. He persuades them. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, verse 4, along with a great multitude. Now you notice the real response is of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Paul came to the synagogue, and the synagogue was primarily Jews, but side by side with the Jews were these proselytes, these people that had taken on the Jewish morals, but not the Jewish diet per se. And they were God-fearing people, and they were looking for the God of the Old Testament in all of his truth and in his coming deliverer, the Messiah. Well, this stirs up the people. Look at verse 5. And the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace and if you can envision this, uh, they had this agora or marketplace where all the people that weren't working and all the people that weren't at work would just kind of gather around and chatter and talk. And In fact, uh, Paul is one time called a babbler, which is someone that would go to the marketplace and hear little scraps of information and just go out babbling those things, acting like they knew something. Well, they go, these, these uh, anarchists, these Jews, they pick up some of these unemployed or un, uh, presently occupied people Wicked men, they're described, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, coming to the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. They were trying to get Paul and like a lynching mob, if you remember from the Wild West days watching television. And they did not find them. They began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting. Now here is this this stirring up of dissension, and here's what they're shouting, because the next thing we see about Paul's coming to Thessal. Thessalonica or to the Thessalonian people is, it evokes, it calls forth a charge. And here's the charge. I want you to see this because this is going to introduce our point. These men who have upset the world have come here also. How do you like that? How would you like to be known as an upsetter of the world? Well, even if you don't want to be known as that, I would dare say in the next few years, we will be known as that. The front page of the USA Today on Friday said that the incredible economic savings that there have been to America and the world because of all these unwanted babies that were either terminated through abortion or not even allowed to exist through all the advances in birth control. And what a great savings to society in the multiplied billions of dollars a year. Now, anybody that stands up for life 
and says that's wrong, we'll be upsetting the world, right? And that's what, in a small uh, taste, is what we're going to face of what they were facing here. These pagans were saying, your belief, your morals, your absolute truth, your God that we don't worship, we worship many gods, that is upsetting us. We're going to pay a price. More than we pay now for being a Christian, we're going to be charged. But now, this is our central focus, and we're going to get to 1 Thessalonians. Look at verse 7. Because this introduces for us, before Paul ever wrote the Thessalonian epistle, this masterful exhortation we're going to study about the fact that these people were to take God at his word. I want you to see, before he ever wrote the epistle, what the setting for that statement is. Look at verse 7. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary. Now listen, these Christians, these upsetters, these people following the Messiah, are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. What are decrees? Words, the laws, the regulations, the written, whatever, all of the codes of the nation, all of the decrees of Caesar. These people are acting contrary to the word of Caesar. Why? Because it says here, they say that there's another king, Jesus. Do you know what Paul's ministry did in this place? He walks in, he reasons with them, he proclaims Christ, he persuades some of them, their lives are changed. This stirs up a little uh, upsetness in the city. It makes them charge them with upsetting the world. And then they come to the ultimate charge that they're giving these people. They convict them of one thing. And the big thing that they're convicting these people of is right there in verse 7. They're following the words or decrees or laws or what another king is telling them to do other than Caesar. Do you know how we could distill that down into modern day language? They were obeying the word of God. They were taking God at his word. They looked on the Lord Jesus Christ as their king to give them the authority, to give them the direction, to give them the guidance and the rules by which to live. And whenever those rules countered what King Caesar said, They obeyed God rather than man. Right from the very start, these unregenerate mobsters in verse 7 of Acts 17 identified the mark of the Christians in Thessalonica. They were following the decrees that were higher than those of the world. They were no longer following the word of Caesar. They obeyed the word of God or literally took God at his word. Now turn back to 1 Thessalonians. I want to show you this very, very precious exhortation. If you've never marked it, circled it, or something, make sure you note it, because it's the third one we've looked at. The first one being in chapter 1, verse 10, where we learned that a Christian who is following God's way of living a blameless life is one who is constantly waiting for the Son, waiting for Jesus Christ's return living in a way that patterns itself after the fact he's coming and he's watching and he's left something for us to do. Then we saw in chapter 2, verse 12, the second thing that characterized Paul's exhortations to them is this exhortation to walk worthy of God. Walk in a way that's not worthy of the world, that's not worthy of friends, that's not worthy of great aspirations or goals, but walk in a way that's worthy of God. 
but then verse 13 of chapter 2, our focus this morning. And let the echo of the mob that is crying out in Acts 17 resound on your ears as you hear Paul exhort these people to keep on doing something that they had been doing from the very beginning. Verse 13 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men. You didn't put it on the same plane as the words of Caesar or the words of some great philosopher, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You see, Paul proclaimed God's word to the city. Only a group of them were changed, were transformed, were touched. Why? Right at the end of verse 13. Because it can only perform its work in you who believe. Those who, by faith, release the power of God's Spirit to transform them, to energize them, to take them from serving idols. Look at, look at verse 9 of chapter 1, just back a little ways from there. Chapter 1, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols. How did they do that? Because Paul came and told them, God, not Caesar, not your local deities, which are false, not your great Greek philosophies. God, the creator of heaven and earth, tells you that he alone is to be worshipped. And they turn from all their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. How astounding that the language of Greek, spoken in its normal way, when combined with the energy of God's Holy Spirit, can change a life. Paul came in speaking Greek to these people, words that were just common in every publication of the day, but the fact that he spoke under the power of God's Spirit, and he was speaking the very words of God, caused a group of people to stop short, turn around, and go a totally different direction. I can't think of anything more thrilling to be involved in myself. I like the way one ancient put it, God only had one son and he made him a preacher. I can't think of anything greater to do than to proclaim God's word. And if you aren't called to do that on a full-time basis, we're all called to be full-time Christians and to be involved with taking God at his word. Now let's look at that. And I want to just describe this briefly this morning of what we're talking about, a life that the Word of God works in, a life that takes God at His Word, a life that obeys the Word of God, a life that, as Paul said, receives the Word and doesn't put it on the same level as all the magazines and books and everything coming across the the radio waves and television waves. We don't put it down here. We put it in a different place. We acknowledge that it's supernatural and it's life-changing, and we take God at His Word and we let Him impact us. This draws us to a life of faith, as the end of verse 13 says of chapter 2 there. Because it can perform its work in us who believe. And this morning, if you believe, God's word can perform its work in you. And from the Garden of Eden to the close of the pages of Scripture, the message is the same, that God is looking for a group of people who will take him at his word, who will believe him and obey him. And I just want to briefly introduce you to the cast of characters that the Bible says God's Word impacted their lives. The cast of characters begins, as the Bible does, in Genesis 4. So if you don't know the books of the <clears throat> excuse me, Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 4. 
start at the very beginning and then go to the fourth chapter. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 5, because the first person we're going to look at is Abel, who was a man who took God at his word. And when God told him something, he offered the sacrifice according to God's word, and God accepted him. Let me read that to you. Genesis 4. And it came about in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord, the fruit of the ground. He brought his best. He brought his things. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. He must have known. In fact, I believe both of them knew what God really wanted. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Abel offered according to what God wanted. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. See, where where do you get according to the word of God? Well, now... Turn all the way to the other end of your Bibles to Hebrews 11, because here's the divine commentary. If you want to buy the best commentary on the Bible, it's the Bible, and everything else is after that. My favorite commentary on the Bible is, of course, what the Bible says about itself. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we find in verse 4, God's commentary on Genesis. And this is what God says was going on at the very beginning of human existence in the Garden of Eden. By faith... Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. What do you mean by faith? Well, he heard what God wanted, and he believed God, and so he obeyed God. He took God at his word, and he offered to God what God wanted. And the classic distinction of all time between the two groups of people in this world are right in the Garden of Eden. There are those who have their own religions. They're doing it their way. Remember Frank Sinatra's famous song, I Did It My Way? That's kind of the theme song about the whole world. I'm going to do things my way. And if I figure I'll get to heaven by being good, I'm going to be as good as I can. If I figure I can get to heaven by a pilgrimage to Mecca, I'm going to do it. If I can do it by some saint or some shrine or some supernatural uh, apparition, I'm going to do that. But God said that's not the way. The only way is through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through his word, from the beginning of all time to the end of all time, he has revealed himself. And if we'll just take him at his word, we can offer according to his satisfaction. And this morning, are we offering what we are and have in God's way? Or do we just give him whatever we want to? Do we just give him a tip of our time? Do we just give him a tip? You know, he's the one that gives us life and health and breath. We just flip him something. Sometimes we give the waiters and waitresses more than we give to God. Sometimes we give our hobbies more than we give to him in meditation. Abel offered to God according to God's word. I found nine more marvelous people. Let me read to you about them and then we'll close. Abraham followed after God's word. Very clearly God spoke to him. He obeyed. David ordered his life by God's word. And how we're going to enjoy the 119th Psalm. We're going to look at that special stanza on the purifying work of God's Holy Spirit through his word. Jeremiah searched out God's word and found it and ate of that word. Job treasures God's word the most. More than anything else, he treasured up God's word. Christ attached one's eternal destiny to God's word. You know, I meet people say, I don't even understand. I hardly read that book. Christ said, 
Your eternal destiny is going to be determined on what you do with my words that I speak to you that are recorded in this book. The Apostle John recorded his gospel to produce faith in God's word. Peter preached salvation came by hearing God's word. The Apostle Paul told us that all of life and spiritual worship is based on God's word. In fact, Paul wrote all of his doctrinal uh, treatises, and then at the end of that doctrinal treatise, he'd say, therefore, live this way. In fact, the first 11 chapters of Romans are all doctrine. There's nothing practical in the first 11 chapters. And when we get to chapter 12, verse 1, Paul begins with practicality. And he says, if you believe correct doctrine, you'll behave correctly. And his whole force of his ministry was, if you can get your doctrine and theology to be comprehended in a correct way, then you have a basis to fulfill your practical duty of obedient living. And Paul bases his call to a life of spiritual worship on God's word, a belief that behaves And then finally, we're going to close with James, who spoke of having the word of God implanted in our hearts. Abel offered, Abraham followed, David ordered, Jeremiah searched, Job treasured, Christ attached, eternal destiny. John wrote to produce faith in, Peter preached salvation by, Paul based all Christian living upon, and James urged us to receive the implanting of God's word. All that. And you and I this morning hold that book in our hands. Let's take God at his word. As you read it, as you treasure it this week. Let's bow for a word of prayer. We thank you, dear Father, for the blessing of having your word. Thank you for the precious fellowship we have shared in song and in offering ourselves to you this morning. Dear Lord, meet with us. Meet the needs of every heart. And if one who is here this morning doesn't know you, may your spirit draw them to yourself according to your perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen.